Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of old terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. All of the great leaders have had one characteristic in common. It was the willingness to confront unequivocally the major anxiety of their people in their time. Is a quote from Canadian-American economist, diplomat and intellectual John Kenneth Galbraith one of the most influential and widely read economists of the 20th century. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today. At a time when leadership is being closely examined as people seek clarity about the vision and confidence in the future. Our guest is Mick McCormack, Chairman of Central Petroleum Limited and Non-Executive Director of Origin Energy, Austal and the Clontarf Foundation. He was previously Managing Director and Chief Executive Officer of APA Group, one of Australia's leading energy infrastructure businesses. In his 14 years at the helm, APA Group grew from 30 employees with assets worth $1.3 billion to 3,000 employees, assets of $24 billion and a top 50 ASX listed company. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock their secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Canada, Indonesia, and Germany, a big hello. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. In a candid conversation, Mick offers his frank assessment on the current state of affairs in Australia, its leadership, the contentious debate on energy, and matters surrounding the ageing population, support for the Indigenous Australians, and a hard look at the values we promote as a society. Finally, having transitioned from his executive career to the boardroom, Mick reflects on the change of pace and shares the lessons that has allowed him to be more effective in the new setting. So sit back and enjoy Shooting the Breeze. Mick, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Um, really nice to be back here. And gee whiz, it's been about 18 months, I guess, since the last time. And we had what a couple of false starts, bloody COVID getting in the way. But anyway, it is what it is. Um, very pleased to uh, see you. I won't say ugly face, but yeah, see your face again. So, Don't say ugly. Yeah, that's not a good way to start, Mick. <laughs> well, it's either that or I'm looking at a mirror. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, how's it out there in the bush, Mick? You've had uh, a bit of time out. Yeah, look, I have, Greg, and, um, you know, it's it's amazing how things play out. I, I gave up work, let's just say, well, two years ago, I guess, you mm. know, retired from full-time work. I had to sit at home on gardening leave for a full 12 months. That's all good as well. And then COVID sort of hits in the middle of that, so I've been out of the uh, out of the game basically for two years. But, um, 
Oh, look, it, it, on the, um, you know, everything about COVID's negative, but uh, to be honest with you, I think there's a fair bit of positives in there. You know, I suppose there'd be a lot of executives like me either still working or they've given up full-time work and COVID's really forced them to have a rethink about what's important in life, you know. For me, I, I last couple of years uh, doing some work around the property and uh, as they say, there's freedom in, in physical work. You know, you, you do something, you fix a fence, you mark up some cattle, whatever. At the end well, of the you'd, day, be, actually... you'd be out there hunting like a madman, wouldn't you, and fishing and uh, shooting everything in... In the way, or <laughs> you coming down oh, now? Yeah, eh? well, yes, I, I yes, I. You know, look at you, you're agile these days, Mick. <laughs> <laughs> yes, doing a bit of hunting, shooting, fishing, um, and the wild pig population certainly decreased very dramatically. And for my, I better clarify that, Greg, for my city, <laughs> inner city listeners, when you live out in the bush in in Australia, in fact, lots of places around the world. Wild pigs, feral pigs do untold damage to uh, properties and, and even your, your domestic stock. So they need to be, um, let's just say, got rid of. But, you know, years and years ago, Greg, on, on the family property up in Proserpine, um, me chasing after some wild pigs with a few dogs and a knife, that's a pure form of hunting. Yeah, um, right. I haven't done that for a while. I'll leave that to my boys. So <laughs> And so these days, it's uh, they, 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 they come home and uh, pull out the weaponry and uh, clean up the wild pigs. So... Yeah. Um, Are they the Razorbacks? In the US, they call them Razorbacks. The same yeah, thing. Right. They're, they're effectively just p domestic pigs that generations ago will, will let go, and pigs will eat anything. They breed well, and and the conditions in, in most Australia for the last couple of years for most feral animals has been very, very good. Lots of rain, lots of grass, lots of cover. Um, but anyway, we've got to get away from uh, hunting wild pigs, Greg. That's not <laughs> No, but I guess I <laughs> guess in between in between the shooting of that moves, um, you've had a chance to. <laughs> no, and again, uh, we. I just got to clarify. We we're very happy to to uh, get rid of uh, feral animals. Yes. Anything else that we shoot gets eaten. Fair enough. Fair so enough. So that's a you know. Um, whether that's domestic or otherwise, if anything else gets shot, um, it gets eaten. But it's been interesting, hasn't it, Mick? You've had, like you say, twenty four or twenty four months out. You've been at the bush. Actually, how's the bush faring? How's um, how, you talked about COVID. You know, some people have been finding it pretty tough. But how's the bush going in regional, in the country Queensland? The borders have been, let's just say, pretty much shut for the rest of the country. Yep. But really, what that's meant for the regional areas is that people that typically were well, living in the cities and and typically would have otherwise, um, you know, drop fifty hundred grand on a ski trip or you know wherever else they go in Europe during our winter, mm. um, the board with the borders being shut, um, they've dropped that sort of money on four wheel drives and you know tricked them up with all the camping gear and and they come out you know out past our place. So the local towns yeah, they've um, got nothing to shoot, but have they? <laughs> <laughs> Greg, you got to have a life. Yeah. Mate, you're going to get me in big strife, mate. I'm, I guess I'm, I'm lucky I'm not working. Yeah, I have got a weapons license, folks, so it's all kosher. Yeah, you left your knife at home, right? Yeah, and my knife's at home. Yeah, you, you want to see a knife? <laughs> mate, I've got one in my backpack. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, so the uh, people, they, they trick it, but rather than spending money overseas, um, uh, they've got nowhere to spend it, so they, they've tricked up four-wheel drive camper vans and all that sort of stuff and come out in the regional areas and discover the, the beauty of, of domestic tourism. So the, the regional areas have done very well. So spirits up, fatigue hasn't set in? Oh, I, look, I think spirits are, are up. I, I notice coming back to the city a bit more now, fatigue certainly set in down here. Yeah. 
but I think uh, it's a combination of in in the bush we're really in, insulated from COVID. You know, we didn't have to wear masks yep. and we're free to move pretty much. And you think about it, people in the bush, it's a big deal to go overseas. You know, it's a it's a big deal to go from wherever you live in to the nearest city. Yep. You know, that's how you you don't tend to do that on a daily basis or even weekly basis yeah. versus people in the cities, um, a bit more money and whatnot. You know, you're jumping on the on the a plane to go to Buddy Bali for a long weekend or over to the across the ditch NZ. Now you've had also an opportunity, Mick, I'm just sort of reflecting on this a bit. Let's not lose sight of the fact that our podcast is all about leadership and high performance. And as a leader, as an ex CEO and now board director, I guess you've had the opportunity to sort of examine, look at uh, what federation has brought to us, good, bad, uh, and what leadership has stood out or hasn't stood out. Bit of a tough question for you, Mick, but uh, what's your observation of the how the premiers and how the the federal ministers, et cetera, have sort of conducted themselves or maybe to the average citizen of Australia in terms of leadership? Yeah, no, you're right. I, when you have got a bit of time on your hands and you know, now I can sit in a tractor and listen to, you know, talk back radio and read the papers, all that sort of stuff. Not that I'm reading the paper and sitting on the tractor, although you can because you can put it on GPS stuff but anyway. I, um, no, I, I be honest with you, Greg, I, I've reflected on that. I've been really disappointed because I, I just, I, I've realised that all levels of government, to my mind, and even the bureaucracy, complete and utter lack of accountability. Decisions are being made without any real thought of what is the, the, the ramifications of those decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you mentioned federation. I think mm. COVID has just demonstrably told me or said to me that we need to get our the whole concept of federation rejigged. There should be an inquiry into that because quite simply with COVID, in my view, it's failed. You know, the idea that um, you can have a, a national, you know, federal government turning up with their health advice which yep. is at odds with the health advice with the various states. And let's be frank here, Greg, um, all the health advice seems to have just lined up with whatever the politics were going at the time. So I haven't seen any written health advice during the whole of COVID. Yeah, right. You know, so no, politics really got in the way there. And and I said about the lack of accountability. I mean, all the decisions that have been made that have cost people their lives, whether that's Ruby Princess here in, in New South Wales. That's right, um, beginning of it all, yeah. Just the stupidity. I mean, I'll, I'll call it stupidity. Remember the COVID app? Remember yes. the They spent about, you know, $5 million bucks developing this app and about $30 million to um, advertise it. And to date, I think there's been about two people have, have heard their gadget go ping, ping. Yeah. You've been close. And that was when I really dawned on me. I thought, gee whiz. When that was announced, you had the Prime Minister whoever was saying, get the app. They said, I'll oh, just download it, you know, and of course, I thought, hang on, some pencil-pushing bureaucrat in Canberra has come up with this, probably 25 years old, got every gadget known to man or woman because yep. they're working for the government. They said, download it. Mate, out where I am, people don't have, they've got mobile phones, but they're Nokias, you know, they're, old, but they're just phones. They don't download anything. So straight away, I asked myself a question, this is not going to work. Because who's going to like my in-laws? Yeah. You had to have a bloody smartphone or whatever that is to go on. So that fell on a great heap of whatever. Mm. Just, you know, um, the rapid antigen tests. Remember the – Yeah. I had mates around the world. They would end up pick up in Europe. 
they had access to the rapid antigen tests. Yeah. Bloody, what, a year in front of us? And that, that was part of the whole COVID thing. You know, you test yourself. If you're positive, don't go out or whatever. And yes, they had still had the PCR stuff. But here in Australia, no, no, we had to have PCR tests. And I'll be cynical here, mate, but, but I think I know I'm right. The only reason that happened was that, you know, if you have PCR tests exclusively, they are done by the pharmaceutical, you know, big <laughs> pharmaceutical outfits. So you do rapid antigen tests, all of a sudden you and I can do them. So, you know, you can see another case of big buddy corporations capturing government. But, I mean, I could, AstraZeneca, I mean, I'm, as you know, I'm up at Queensland. Hmm. AstraZeneca, you know, I think I'm more right than wrong here, saved most of the bloody planet in respect of the vaccinations for COVID. Yes. But in Queensland, no, you had a chief officer. Who got promoted. To governor general, who basically shit canned it. And that put, you know, no one wanted to get AstraZeneca, you know. And yet, Mark, go on, just stop me when you tell you. Know, the first up, get the jab, get two jabs, and we're all good. We'll get two jabs, then three jabs, and we're still not good, as in with isolation rules and all that sort of carry on. So, and you know the the thing about um, politicians, you know they love a crisis, they love having population fear, because it's easy to you know just easy to government keep the bloody population in fear. But I, I, did I answer your question? Federation, I think COVID really showed up that you know Federation, in my view, is buggered. You know, can you imagine? I'm just exaggerating to make my point. You imagine the barbarians coming over the, the tip of Cape York. Mm. What would you have Victorians doing or New South Wales, you know, based on COVID experience? Well, have fun, Queensland, but we're putting a border up. Or yeah. they come in from Perth or, you know, up from, just based on COVID, so, he's a bloody rabble. What would you change, Mick? What do we have to do? Well, I, rather than just an inquiry, you know, it's, Josh, you're sounding <laughs> like a politician. <laughs> you're just as bad as Emmy. <laughs> Bloody inquiry. Yeah. But you only have an inquiry if you know the answer. That's right. <laughs> That's where it gets um, pretty difficult, Greg, because to change things means that the states would probably have to cede or give up some power. But, you know, I'd like to think that given what has happened with COVID. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, I'm obviously a fan of bloody democracy, but in Australia here for the last, say, 30, 40 years, like at least 30, most of my, in fact, all of my, apart from the first 10 years of my working career, it's a growing economy. It's been, life's been good, mm. easy. You know, as they say, when um, when bad stuff happens, that's when your character gets tested. Yep. You know, and I think our politicians have been, uh, sorely wanting there because they're just used to dropping into the political bureaucracy and, you know, jump on a plane, go around the world, go to UN, this, that, everything else, bugger eyes around, tell the rest of us what to do, but don't do it themselves. The Federation, the the bad stuff um, with COVID has shown the, the cracks there. And I'd, I'd like to, you know, I know it won't happen, but if there was to be a serious discussion around what COVID taught us in respect of protecting the whole nation mm. in a coherent, consistent way. Mm. I think that discussion would lead to, um, you know, having to think about rejigging where the, the powers for national security exactly and right. such like should lie. Yeah. But yeah, um, mate, I'm living in fantasy like the rest of the population. That won't happen. And well, I doubt it will happen, but it should.
And what do you think of the average Australian? There wasn't a lot of marching or protesting. That, yeah, that, I thought I, that was pretty interesting too, Mick. We can sit back and say we're not a fan of the governments, but at the end of the day, they're supposed to represent us. Yeah, and no, look, that's uh, a, where that's, were we? Yeah, that's an interesting point, Greg. I get my, I get mates, you know, I guess through business over the years, particularly in the US, and you know, we talked about hunting, shooting, fishing earlier. So those mates tend to be in the, the lower part of the US. <laughs> well, they say to me, "What's going on with the Aussies? With the Aussies? You know, you're just laying down like um, half dead dogs and mm-hmm. getting whipped." You know, how could you possibly just sit there and take that to government? And, you know, as I say, Don, well, interestingly, um, for all you think about Australians, we're pretty, uh, we're a pretty socialistic and left-leaning country, you know, compared to, say, the US, other places. So I can't fathom that. I I'm, I'm sound like you're surprised. I, I'm mm. equally surprised. Yeah. I followed the rules because I had to, you know, I still trying to do some business. So you get in a plane, had to be vaccinated. So you, yep. you make the choice. Yep. So you, in a sense, you had to. But the whole COVID situation really fractured society in the sense of you had people who they probably still wish that COVID was happening. They're happy to be working from home. You know, I get a sense of that here in the in the cities. You get some people out where I, I come from, I live, you know, they're still thinking that um, people like me have got three vaccines. I'm getting tracked by the, the government, going to die in five years. And, you know, I got a, you know, um, I got a chip in the in my head somewhere. You know, they otherwise saying people believe all this stuff because yeah. they pick it up on the internet. You know, so I think also it leads to, like Victoria, the longest running jurisdiction in lockdown. And, in the world. And I, the whole of COVID, we've almost forgotten now because, you know, what we've been through and some very sad cases of relatives dying and, and others can't come across borders to see them, whatever. And I think the real cost of COVID is yet to be seen. I think it'll be it'll play out over next five or 10 years, you know. I mean, you think about this, um, kids, you know, I, I said earlier, it's, it's good for executive types um, in the sense that they've, without travelling, they've actually had to stay at home. So families are seeing their fathers, mothers, whatever, which is fantastic. Yeah. But kids in the formative years, whether you're going into primary school or kindergarten, they probably call it, you know, I'm out of Jurassic Park, they probably call it maybe something else in kindergarten, but primary school, high school, you know, my younger bloke finished up engineering at University of Queensland mm-hmm. last, December, you know, a couple of months ago. And for the last two years, haven't really interacted with, uh, you know, his, his, his course group. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's the whole fun of uni. You know, no point going to uni if you can't get in a beer. Mm. So if you're stuck studying, I mean, that's – anyway. Um, it's just a distraction. So I just think um, – <laughs> yeah, he's always bagging me. You drink too much. Yeah, fair enough. That's fine. But I, I did get through uni. Just. <laughs> so, no, I, I just I – don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm just musing, Greg. I, I think the real cost of COVID we're going to see in the next buddy – Five, ten, fifteen years, and um, you know, you, you know, I'm I've been involved with uh, indigenous causes with teenage boys mostly for decades. Yeah, okay. Unless you tell people, they don't realise. You know, when you shut down access to schools and you know, just getting around places, um, I'm now talking in remote areas, and it's one of my other bugbears. The rules that apply to high density areas like Sydney here, yes, with COVID isolation. They should be completely and utterly different from the rules that apply 
um, you know, 350 miles southwest of, oh, what's that, 400 kilometres southwest of Alice Springs in the middle of nowhere. Yep. Point is that our programs for Indigenous boys and getting them into safe places like schools and whatever, now you start in introducing isolation rules, shutting down our ability to do that, you get these vulnerable boys have got no safe place to go, like school yep. or our our staff getting them to school and looking after them, you know, all of a sudden you see interactions with police go up, yeah. you know. So a lot of, with a whole heap of um, any consequences which have come out of COVID, you know, we, we'll, we'll yet to witness. I'll come to that in a bit, little bit later, actually, Mick. As you also know, Mick, uh, we've had uh, in the short recent time inflation, interest rates, both have risen in the last few weeks. And uh, not too far away, Mick, we've got an election coming up. Now, I thought leaders are there to inspire, to engage, to motivate, and to get an outcome um, well, yeah, for the country, right? And and also lead. That's right. You know, if you're a leader, even if you think you're, you know, if, just pretend you are. Like, just even if you don't, they don't know what you're doing, just pretend you do. Just you have to lead. And, mate, interest rates. I, I, I just, this again, complete and utter lack of accountability. You got all these um, gross generalization here, so shoot me down, folks. Sitting around that RBA board, you got inner city elites, you got city based, typically city based corporate honchos and bureaucrats and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. To leave that there, you've got the uh, boss of the RBA for the last couple of years, and at least up until the last 12 months, yeah. telling all and sundry, it's all right, folks. Yeah, keep borrowing money. We're not going to touch interest rates until 2024. Yeah, that's right. I sit on a couple of boards and, you know, got a property, what sort of stuff. Mate, my prices that I've experienced and on the boards I'm on, they've been going up for 12 months. So how possibly we see a tick up in inflation in the last two quarters ago, the last one's what's five point something, and all of a sudden, shock horror. Um, wow, inflation's up. No, I'm just narked because, and this is where I'm bagging them, the narrative coming out of the RBA, I mean, it's just irresponsible. And I don't think I'm alone there. Mm. Maybe it's a gross generalisation, so I happen to get shot shot down on it, but, you know, um, well-intentioned, but obviously somewhat ignorant people sitting around the RBA board table, let it drift for a year, and then all of a sudden... And what's that got to do with leadership and politics? Well, rather than governments taking credit for interest rates continuing to go down or stay low, fine, they can take credit for that, but they should be tagging on the end of that. Well, you know, in free enterprise societies, as sure as night follows day, low interest rates precede higher interest rates. So, folks, you know, we've had a great... 10 or 12 years of declining interest rates, but the time will come when they start going to start to bounce up. You know, I, know it's the, I know it's only 25 basis points from 0.01 or something, yeah, which is, basis, which is right. bugger all, but That's still, right. you know, all of a sudden everyone's spooked and cost of living and inflation and mm. which, um, you know, that, that's leadership. You know, rather than taking political credit for all this stuff, it's, you know, leadership's around if you're a politician, in fact, a business leader, yeah, fine, we're having good times, but let's just keep a, at least one eye on what the future might entail. And others keep saying, mate, I'm, I'm nobody economist, but they cycle. You go 
uh, low interest rates aren't necessarily a sign of a healthy economy. That's why they're low. And inflation, you know, ipso facto, inflation, some degree of inflation is a sign of a healthy economy and you don't want to get it too healthy. That's where interest rates are, are typically the break. But, you know, it won't result in the fact that, you know, I think the RBA got that completely and utterly wrong, absolutely wrong. And what about the actual discourse and what you heard so far, both Liberal and Labor and uh, all in sundry? Uh, you know, there's a big push for independence at the moment too, Mick. So what's your, what's your take on where, where the country's at? Well, it's, it's pretty hard to stay awake, isn't it, listening to them, to be honest with you. I mean, I, you know, small target and no target and, you know, this this presidential style carry on, you know, um, and... You know, my background's energy, of course, and like for the last couple of elections, um, federally, you know, bugger all coming out of there policy-wise in energy. Well, what has come out of that? Because, you know, a little bit about energy. Uh, has it evolved at all during the last five, ten years and, and what both parties are putting forward now? Is there anything moving forward? Well, I'll tell you what both parties aren't putting forward to right now, Greg, is that... Um, I, you know, I, I'm again. I, I don't quote me on the exact number, but I'm more right than wrong. Wholesale electricity prices twelve months ago versus today. I haven't checked today, but they're probably up a hundred percent. So double. If it's not double, they're you know well over. You know, so serious up to. So energy prices that must flow through the retail sector. So energy prices are increasing. Okay, and here we are. We've been told. The transition, we're going to go away from black and brown coal and all that sort of, you know, transition to a cleaner energy future, which I've said, you know, a million times, even people out where I are, we all want we all want that to happen. But, you know, in the city here, it's all about let's do it tomorrow uh, and bugger the consequences because the lights won't go off on Sydney. They'll go off where we are, whereas out where I am, it's, it's um, yeah, we want to do that, but let's make sure it's a planned transition so we know what it's going to cost who's going to pay it, and that the lights are going to stay on. Well, what is a planned transition, Mick? Because I hear it, but how long is, are you talking about? If you're a chief exec for the day to overrun, you know, to manage this planned transition. Well, there, there is no, right now, Yeah, there, there, there is no planned transition. And, you know, we've all, we've all signed up to net zero to 2050, or at least let's just say most of the developing countries. Yes. That, that's great. Yep. But the downside of that is that, you know, there's been a completely – uh, there's been no lack of coordination between those countries signing up to net zero in 2050 in how we're going to get there. So, um, yeah, we've all got that's the target, but there's no there's no plan around um, what's to happen to get there. And in the absence of of detailed policy, you've got state governments and also business, and business is trying to make money out of this, so they're yeah. making decisions accordingly to invest in renewables or whatever it is yep. to make money. And my concern about that is that, you know, a plan to transition would have us detailing this is how we're going to get there. These are the coal-fired or, you know, gas, whatever, whatever that will, you know, in an orderly way come out. Yep. Um, here's the price signal. And, you know, you can't have a planned transition without some sort of price signal on carbon. And, and here's where, you know, where I sort of, it's very disappointing for me because I'm, as a younger person, I was floating around in 2005 or six. John Howe was Prime Minister and they had a task force there to set up, a, you know, 
basically put a price on carbon, which is a cap and trade scheme. So forget, forget the details, it was a price on carbon. And the idea was, you know, it was going to be 0.001 cent, so nothing. And then over the next 25 years, just slowly crank it up. Now, had that plan not got bastardised by successive governments, that's what, 2005, so to now, what's that, 17 years? Yeah. We'd be halfway there. There'd be no brown coal going. There'd probably no <laughs> bugger or black coal. We've blown up 17 years and um, today we've got a, a political divide because you've got those people um, and well-intentioned as they are, they want to get away from, from fossil fuels tomorrow, mm-hmm. but you cannot do that without major impacts um, in respect of reliability to the system, as in blackouts. You know, it's easy to talk about we're going to put more renewables in with batteries, but to do that on a big scale, you know, sooner rather than later, it's not going to happen. And then equally, um, you've got people who want to persist with um, coal fire, you know, fossil fuel power generation. But it comes back to the the nature of Australian politics right now. Again, it's easy for me to talk about this stuff. I'm not a politician. You know, the the answer is is it's very simple, just not all that easy to to bring into into being because you've got, you know, whether you're liberal national, they've got the the right wing fringe there who are you know they're not going to support anything around carbon pricing or you know whatever. You got the uh, Labor with the Green uh, loony left fringe attached to that, and with an election coming up, it's hung Parliament. Um, you know, I don't think that's that's uh, good news for for stable policy either in, in an energy sense. So, what's what is the uh, the truth, Mick? Now, all of us read the newspapers, and it gets it does get a bit blurry sometimes. But in regards to renewable energy, when do you think it's actually going to become truly viable? And uh, we never hear the word nuclear that often, do we? Yeah, well, look, um, renewable energy is viable now. It's it's there's no question it's cheap. But you know, what I'm getting at is that. You know, it's it's raining in Sydney here at the moment. Mm. You know, if I've got a solar panel outside your front door here, you know, this microphone not going to work, is it? No. So that's, you know, it's it's one thing to say, yes, it's cheap, and then use that as an argument to say, I oh, shut down all the coal. I'm just being pragmatic here. Yeah, yeah. You shut down all the coal tomorrow. It's like the whole AGL, the, the demerger thing going on. Non-Australians are big Australian... Um, Energy companies basically splitting its asset based from uh, generation and, and retail. So, you know, then that merger has been um, contested on the basis that um, you know some of the shareholders want to do that sooner. But I can't if if AGL was to you know someone gets control of it and, and says that we're going to shut down coal. Where's where's the backup? You take off certain amount of capacity out of the system, where's the backup? Where's the replacement coming from? And again, you can say, oh, just more renewables, but it's not as simple and as cheap as that. You know, I've been saying for decades, once we have a technological breakthrough that you've got a battery the size of, I've got a Coke can in my hand, you know, the size of that that can keep a house going for 24 hours and cost, you know, $15, Yeah, job done. Yeah, right. Right now, do the same thing. I need something as big as that, Bloody bar fridge you got in the corner. Yeah. Same as hydrogen. Yep. You know, hydrogen. Cracking components to make hydrogen, I mean, that's that's no big deal. It's it's in compound form. It's, you know, natural gas, coal, water, you know, just whack it with some energy and bang, crack it and you you produce hydrogen, you know. No, no, no big deal. And and how you do that, 
If you do use renewables, because you probably heard green, that's green hydrogen, that's bloody pink hydrogen, grey hydrogen, brown hydrogen, black, depending on what the – so, yeah, all, all, all simple. And the whole world's jumped up, particularly Australia. We've got hydrogen hubs all over the joint. But it's interesting because um, I often get asked about hydrogen and I'm, and I'm you know, you're negative. I said, no, I'm not, again, I'm not negative about it. It's, it's, it's doable, but before we all jump on the train, direction – uh, and destination we don't know. Let's just get some basic pragmatic issues attached to it um, on the table so they can understand. And in, in looking at that, I remember um, uh, George W. Bush in uh, what they call it, State of the Union address or something That's in, right, in, yeah. in 2003, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. Part of that was um, a big swag of money was going to go into hydrogen. And he said that, you know, by 2020, we're going to have hydrogen powered cars on the roads, US roads. And as I see today, there's not one hydrogen car on a US road. Mm. So, you know, um, that's the difficulties there. But anyway, no, for those that are interested, the hydrogen is a gas. It's very light, flammable, and um, unfortunately, very explosive. You know, transporting, it's a bit challenging. You know, you can put it through custom-made pipelines in liquid form or ammonia. And if, um, you know, you put hydrogen into our existing gas pipeline network in Australia, which a yeah. lot of people think, oh, that's that's easy, easy to do. And of course it's easy to do, but once you go more than 10% of hydrogen, um, it becomes dangerous, as in the, the hydrogen component causes something in the steel cause embrittlement, you know, code for, you know, it might blow up. Yeah, right. And then after you've got to always change all your burner tips on your gas appliances, all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, it hasn't been proven at scale yet. But these are, you know, that's like any technology you can, uh, the more you do it at the larger scale, you know, the more it becomes um, viable. But I just asked the question, um, the the focus on hydrogen right now, is it really a, a practical means to an end? And I just you know, also see that many punters turn up to the party sticking their hands out for government subsidy. Yeah, right. Which is you know, a bit of a you know, worry for me too. But What about nuclear? Well, mate, I will get shot down. I'll never get invited back to your podcast now. Um, mate, nuclear should be absolutely on the table. I mean, I, I, Australians are a funny bunch, eh? In fact, we'd say we're pretty selfish. We, we're happy to be the world's biggest producer, exporter of uranium. <laughs> That's good. You know, dig it up, make a quid out of it. But, you know, <laughs> we won't even let people pay us to go and bear it and get out in the middle of nowhere. That's right. And then on the way through, we can't have um, any nuclear plants. And, you know, one technology that I find very appealing and, and doable right now is the, the modular um, nuclear plants, which, are, you know, as, as the name infers, is small, physically small nuclear power plants that, um, and they're modular. You can, you know, put them anywhere. So if we could get over, over that, and unfortunately with uh, uh, green against uranium for the best part of 50 years now. There hasn't been all that much, generally speaking, not a real lot of technical engineering advances in, in the technology. Do you imagine if um, nuclear had been in wider use than what it is now in the last, say, 50 years? And yes, uh, people say, what about Chernobyl? Well, come on. Am I going to buy a, a car from made in Russia? No. Why is that? Well, I couldn't trust it. Am I going to... You know, am I going to go on <laughs> a simple vein? Do you really think a nuclear plant in Russia is, is the, the standout example of, of technology? Of course not. Um, and the one in, in Japan, unfortunately, the 
Fukushima. Yeah, the the power plant itself was was fine. They just got a fundament got it fundamentally wrong the cooling system on a fault line. So once the earthquake hit, I couldn't cool it down. So, um, but no, nuclear should be well on the table. And if we could get that happening, uh, that's the greenest of all, you know. And and the footprint is so small as well. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Mick McCormack. In our next episode, I sit down with Elizabeth McGregor, OBE, AM, former director of the Museum of Contemporary Art Australia. Challenging that that misconception about art. I was, and of course, that's what drives me anyway. So I was passionate to do that. And I knew there was no way that we were ever going to get government funding until we changed that perception. We ran a campaign. You know, for example, there was a negative headline in the Daily Telegraph. Uh, and then there was a story that said, you know, should they get more public funding? Well, we didn't get any as it happens. And there was a number to ring. So I was in the museum. It was a Sunday. I stood on the front desk and I told everybody who came through the door to ring the Daily Telegraph. And they did. And we won the poll. So the next day, the headline was, public says MCA should get more public funding. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now back to the show. Now, I'm going to jump sidestep here for a little bit, Mick. You're involved with Indigenous Australians. What's happening out there? What's the plight of the communities? I don't think we have a real solid discussion about it, do we? No, God, with, yeah, I mean, I, I've said in the last podcast, grew up with them, you know, on the, my family property and whatever, and had a lifelong, um, I guess, affinity, not necessarily with them, but certainly with their plight. And I said last time, in many cases, the plight of Indigenous Australians in my lifetime has gone backwards. I hadn't gone forwards. You know, shame as it is for me to say this, I could take you to a number of places in Australia where you would be absolutely hor- – and tomorrow, I could take you tomorrow, you'd be horrified with the conditions these people are living in and, um, you know, just, just the, the desperate lives they, they lead. Um, it is what it is and you can only focus on – you know, that bit that you can make a difference and that's where the Contaf Foundation comes in. We try and encourage boys, you know, turn uh, Indigenous boys into, into good men. Yeah, right. And just as that's a cycle. Good men tend to um, lead more meaningful lives and particularly those around them, wise partners and, you know, in the future their own kids. So that's the cycle. But um, I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of politics gets caught up with with indigenous, uh, particularly indigenous politics, yep. um, and it's it's a pretty difficult. You know, I mentioned earlier, I could take you to places tomorrow that make you, you know, make you cry. You know, you you think, oh, let's just get in there and fix it straight away, but you can't. <laughs> you know, so um, the cure isn't always acceptable, particularly to the to the non-indigenous people, but. Um, and I you know, often say that the issues that non-Indigenous people see around in Indigenous conditions don't line up with what Indigenous people see. Here in Sydney, you have know, a big march every Australia Day. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I take it out there. Um, the average Indigenous mother, maybe ask her what's you know what's what's your top five issues, and when Australia Day is wouldn't even rate on the list. Yeah, it's about things like getting the kids a job. Get access to healthcare, you know. Get them um, not the kids, but just the, the booze and and drugs that rife through the community. That sort of stuff, you know, pretty basic. Access to school, yeah. So 
No, I sound a bit negative there, Greg, but um, there, as I said, I, and I won't, again, won't back away from what I said in my lifetime, the part of the Indigenous people, particularly out there, has got worse, not got, got better. And I can only um, take some comfort the, in the work that the Contar Foundation does. We've got, you know, over 10,000 boys now in our program. So that's from basically, you know, young boys through to, to um, last year of schools. That's whole focus on the program is getting them into and staying into school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's also accepting that, you know, the white man's wrecked their culture. So it's it's beyond just saying, oh, we just leave them out there, put a fence around them and, you know, let them go back to whatever they're doing. I mean, we've wrecked their culture. So the best thing we can do for them is help them get into um, our economy so they then got the opportunity they can rec- reconcile with country and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we don't teach them culture because we're, we're not Indigenous. So but we give them the means to hopefully get into our economy and get uh, good jobs and, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and just becomes compounding. Is it moving in the right direction, Mick? Oh, I think our program is, uh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I having said that, there's other some other very good programs, and I have a uh, one of my other stock standard whinges whenever I can get in front of an audience and talk about these sorts of things is, you know, if any corporate is thinking about doing something for Indigenous just have a think about if, you know, what you're doing, if it involves money, have a think about not just doing something internally, as in setting up a foundation and then having to staff it and whatever, and you feel good about that. You're going to spend some money on it. How about having a think about putting that money into an existing charitable effort that demonstrably works and then is, is scalable because you're, you're actually going to make a difference? You know, I see that many big companies, and not even not even not so big companies, set up their own foundation. So there's hundreds of them, and all separate bloody administrations and all that sort of stuff. And when I hit them up with that, I bore them. I said, "Oh well, you know, we the staff we like to do our own thing." I said, "No, you're feeling good because you're doing your own thing. You know, sure you're doing something for out there, but." You know, for the what you're spending in admin costs, if it went into the Contar Foundation, or in, I'm not, you know, talking my own book, of course, but you, you could put it into there's any number of them. Um, I just say to people, if you got money, have a think about putting it into something that that works, demonstrably works, keeps numbers, is scalable. And I keep saying scalable because the extent of the problem, Greg, is from Cape York to Melbourne, from Brisbane to bloody Perth, and in fact, you go up to Darwin. So, and Cape York, Tiwi Islands, and a few other places. So it's across the country, you know. So it's got to be scalable. This is um, doing a death, aren't I? Versus just saying, well, there's a map of Australia. Throw a dart, bang it, it lands somewhere, you know, five, 200 bloody kilometres southwest of Longridge. Let's set something up there. You know, that's the sales pitch for any corporates out there. So on a leadership play there, Mick, and we're talking leadership again, have, we're, have we led in helping them out? Spent a lot of money as a nation. I mean, I mean, the answer is no. Again, this is my point. Um, we can feel good about giving them, and it's interesting who them is, mm. money, and we're talking about Indigenous people, you yeah. know, but it's no different. You get governments involved with and bureaucracies involved in anything, mate, the bigger it gets, the more shithouse results are. So whether I'm talking about our medical system or Indigenous affairs, 
or response to bloody COVID. I mean, look at our medical system. The money that goes in, NDIS, the money that they just poured into it. Mm. And out the back end of it, you know, uh, just get a drip and a bloody squirt and a bit of a fart every now and again. You know, um, I mean, the NDIS has only been around, I know I'm getting off topic here, but have a spray. You know, the NDIS has only been around a couple of years. And where I'm out where we are, I mean, it's it's just rorted. You know, there's every bug is either on the NDIS or working for it. You've got neighbours taking neighbours, you know, one neighbour will get on the, what do you must do, some online course, become a carer or or able to, yeah, be a carer, you know, doctor just, and that's easy out there, doctors will, will sign anything. You know, neighbour taking other neighbours down shopping, you know, or builders, you know, oh, NDIS, you know, just multiply the invoice by three or five or whatever. I think going back to the election, I heard um, Labor Party said they're going to try and, you know, get rid of the admin. admin co- my my in-laws, no factual case. They got a couple of home care packages only because every other bugger's getting them, so they get two home care packages for doing some physio and whatever, and eight grand each. And I saw the invoice, four grand in project management. Don't throw them under the bus there, Mick. <laughs> no, I'm not. I won't, but not only that. <laughs> You know, they're, they're, they're a couple yep. and they wouldn't service them together. Yeah, right. I know. Uh, we got a separate, you know, come out, I'll come out now. Of course, this is, they're an hour and a half from, you know, where the service provider, you know. And going back to Indigenous, same thing. We just got this mentality of, um, yeah, we started the whole conversation, lack of accountability. That's what I've seen. Let's say we're going to do something, spend some money and good, the money's spent, but no one asks the question about what, what's the outcome and if the outcome's not flash, well, someone, as they say, uh, hedge should roll, but that doesn't seem to happen. We just move on to the next issue. Oh, it just takes some more money. HK is one of your uh, bugbears as well, isn't it? <laughs> Mate, we're going on. What are you, you? We're going on a downhill ride today. Yeah, we'll turn it around and see. <laughs> but it's crucial. This is all part of what's going to. The governments are standing up, representing, and we're not a younger society. We're only getting older. Yeah. Oh, no, well, we've had the conversation before. Age, care, no, that's right. None of us are getting any, any younger, and um, I'm certainly an age where you've, you've got parents who, um, you know, starting to see the back end of their lives in, in a health sense, and um, and my, my wife is the chair of a local age care facility up there in regional Queensland, the name of which I won't disclose because I don't want to get her in your strife. One of the her bugbears, and, and I see this, is that during the COVID pandemic in particular, um, all the issues around aged care and how bad it is isn't reflected in the smaller aged care facilities like those in the regional areas in the country. And that's pretty simple to understand why, because again, governments get involved, you know, they corporatise all this stuff. So you've got, wherever you've got big government subsidies coming in, to any sector of the economy, you're going to have half smart entrepreneurs in there pretty soon after. So the issues around aged care that have been well publicised in the media in the last couple of years have been all around typically big city facilities and, you know, they're all about getting people um, into an institution you know, scale economies, all of that sort of stuff, which is precisely what aged care shouldn't be. And this, you know, the Aged Care Royal Commission talked about this, irrespective of corporate structure, the best aged care facilities are smallish in number. 
uh, as in they've got a small, relatively small number of residents. So you, then you don't have nurse to, to resident issues like they've got in the, in the cities here. Um, most importantly, in those small facilities, as my wife says, the day the manager of the facility doesn't know every resident personally, that's the day that, you know, the provision of service starts to decay. So smaller scale aged care facilities don't have the staff to, to nurse issues that they've got in the, in fact, they take this for granted. Um, the staff know all the residents, the managers know all the residents. In fact, most of the residents have grown up in the same place the staff have. You know, so all of a sudden, you know, if we've grown up together, Greg, and after, you know, 70 years, I'm looking after you in an aged care facility, I'm hardly going to turn up and treat you badly, am I? No. Um, Oh, you might. Well, <laughs> I was going to say, I think, I think of a reason I'm going to say, yeah, unless, unless you dudded me on that. <laughs> that, that B owed me one day. That's um, right. And, and, you know, my wife issue is the people generally out there working in the facilities are all well-intentioned. Their wages aren't all that flash. No. And, again, that's driven because bigger places – they want to squeeze, keep the wages down um, because it goes to help the profits. About 70% of the cost of an aged care facility is in the wages. So, yeah, as I said, my wife's biggest issue for the facilities that yeah, she can speak to is, is not so much the wages. It's just that very well-intentioned and, and well-meaning and very empathetic staff just see themselves getting bloody pasted in the press every day mm. um, because other facilities, particularly in the cities, uh, with pretty much a profit motive, get the media. But as I said, you know, heavy heavy subsidies in any industry, that that sucks the corporates in. They they take the money, trim the service, you know, and and crank up the profits. That's a you know, that's what that's what tends to happen. But unfortunately, with aged care, you're 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 dealing with um, with real people. And I, was, I did, and the last point I make too, I mentioned home care packages earlier on. You know, the, the thing that the people in the industry in aged care facility don't want to see is that to have people who should be in aged care scared about going into aged care because they hear bad stories. You know, again, I'm speaking for where I'm at, people out there, once they can't really care for themselves, they need to go into aged care. So um, there's no point having somebody who can't look after their personal hygiene and all that sort of stuff. No mm -hmm. point them staying at home in a big old lonely cold house and have trouble going out the front gate to get or the front door to get the meals on wheels only because they're scared of going into aged care. It's much better to have those people get into aged care. All of a sudden they're, they're part of a community and that's the important thing. You know, there's nothing worse than being um, being lonely at the best of times. So, yeah, that, that's the rant on aged care. I mean, there's two there's two slants to it. You know, all the bad, bad stuff about aged care is what's happening in the, the cities and that typically is, you know, Big, big um, corporates with with profit motives, and and again, no accountability. All this stuff is absolutely regulated. They're audited. So where's the regulators? Well, that's a good question. If they were following the rules, you'd have wouldn't have the issues. Yeah, very true. So you know, they go missing. Well, that takes us on to the next fun topic: gambling, <laughs> alcohol. Well, they, well they, yeah. they, they've had some regulators oh, going to miss. Yeah, bloody hell. Mate, what a shocker. I got very bad memories of, per, you know, my family and they point going into breaking up old coals. It is what it is between, buddy, gambling, alcohol. 
Um, I'll be in a crusade forever. I got no issue if you want to drink, uh, you want to gamble, fine. But I got a huge issue in Australia here that gambling in particular has just taken over so much of the media. You can't watch football here. It's you have footy players, you have all manner of stars coming on the TV and radio and, and in print media basically trying to tell you how good, how much fun it is to gamble on just about anything. So, you know, in my view, that should be um, you know, gambling for and booze as well. Booze, of course, is the nation that much that much aggravation. It should be banned, as in not the activity, but the advertising for the activity. And, yeah, you mentioned gaming, Greg. Mm. Since we last spoke, mate, um, those Royal Commissions or whatever the commission's into, Star, what's the other outfit, Crown? God's truth. I mean, it's just corrupt. And here you have these boards. Like, I mean, I call them in a city elites, but mates, you have these boards sitting around a table pretending that, you know, because they can get comp private jets going around the joint, you know, all the large S come with, you know, being on the board of a gambling outfit, pretending that they're not, uh, <laughs> they're not money laundering when they've got all these special rooms and there's, you know, people coming in and like shock horror. But, um, you know, I get back to my point. I presume that the gambling industry in Australia is probably very, very highly regulated. Mm. Mate, where's the regulators been? They've been on the private jet too. Where, where have they been? And all of a sudden, shock horror, like it, you can't believe it. Oh, it, one inquiry is underway now. And I see the CEO there or ex-CEO is talking about, Jesus, oh, I didn't, I didn't realise what was going on, but the executive never told me. Shit, imagine me run that story back in APA days. You'd be drop-kicked out the door. In fact, you wouldn't be drop-kicked, you'd be thrown out the bloody window. Oh, sorry, board, I didn't know what was going on. They, they didn't tell me. But aren't you the CEO? Yeah. Only paying you a bucket load of money? Yeah. But, you know, that's, but I'm not supposed to ask, you know, just atrocious. And that, you know, verifies my point. You know, show me a bloody casino, mate, and I'll show you a complete and utter den of iniquity. You know, money laundering, old shooting match. So, anyway, good luck to him. You know, having said that, I do back everybody horse in the Melbourne Cup, hundred bucks each way. So that's the only time I can be guaranteed. Yeah, good luck to him. But they, like booze, mate, they should not be advertised. And and gambling, just particularly in the last couple of years, because I've watched a bit more of TV and and you know stuff. Well, it comes hand in hand with sport a lot, Mick. I think there's probably more people want to gamble on the sport i'm talking about kids as well than actually play the sport yeah right and can i go as far as to say that i know it's probably poor context and again probably get shot down but you know it's almost like grooming kids grooming kids to, to gamble when you see your superstar sports people saying mm. oh it's great to have a bet and this and that and whatever and pick i mean i don't even know how it works multis and double triple multis and points you know so no and we're but you know Nothing will change because uh, Australia, the Australian government, you know, the both um, governments of any persuasion, we've now um, got ourselves absolutely wedded to the idea of its revenue. And I remember, I think it was Kerry, the late Kerry Packer said this at some stage, um, gambling is taxation of the poor. You know, people who can gamble like with Kerry, you could whack on a sheep station or double or, or double or nothing, you know, that's fine. You can afford a sheep station. With the poor old, you know, the, the the damage done by it. But anyway, that's, yeah, nothing's changed. I'm still butting my head up against the brick wall there, but I'll keep every, every time I say that, yeah, how we just turn a blind eye to something that's just a bloody bite on society.
So what's your take now? You've made the move from being an executive into the boardroom. So you've you given us one view of some of a certain board behaviour. You enjoying it? <laughs> oh, mate, I'm a perfect director. Yeah, I've got to say that, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> mate, any board have me on it's a problem, eh? <laughs> some pretty big boards. <laughs> No, look, it's it's been interesting, um, and in a, in a positive sense. You, you go from, um, you know, you, you spend your, your basically your career at the, the you know the lead the lead dog, you know, as the Alaskans say with the with the sled dogs, the lead dog. You know, it's good been out there because the view always changes. Not so flash being the dog's behind him. But um, no, look, it's been interesting. You you move from. Uh, the cut and thrust, uh, the fun, you know, the adrenaline, all that sort of stuff of of making the decisions and thinking about strategy and executing it, and then you try and find the right balance just to sit in the background there and um, make a make a positive contribution. So you, I tend to only focus on those areas that uh, I think I can make a contribution versus turn up and just rabbiting on to try and convince people that I'm smart because. Everyone knows that the <laughs> that's not everyone probably knows what the what the truth is anyway. But you get uh, the other positive you get to experience some different industries, um, and the whole process of because I, I basically had one job, you know, my whole yeah. life in one industry. So yeah. often said my skills aren't very wide, but hopefully they're fairly deep. Then you like playing for a new footy team, you know, you you turn up and you're mixing it with people who've got big reputations in business and you, you know, you try and learn from what they're doing and what they're not doing and others. And, you know, so it's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting, um, interesting experience, but, uh, but I do miss the, miss the cut and thrust of uh, making the decisions and, you know, whatnot. So just on that, Mick, um, we're talking about an election, we're talking about politicians, leadership. Is business finally in tune with, with the governments of today or there's still a lot of work to be done? That's a that's an interesting question too. Uh, I think in some areas, business is doing their own thing with profit as a motive, typically. And we talk particularly in energy. Yeah, well, you, you didn't work for a charity. Yeah, no, that's right. No, I, I always say I'm not working for a charity. I'm here to make money. So that's what businesses is do. But in the last couple of years, there's been a big push in in ESG, not just in energy, but just across the the, the paddock. You've had. Yeah. Um, you know, all the whole diversity, inclusion, you know, which, you know, I just used to take that as, as a given, you know, I, I, everyone looks the same to me, you know, so um, I never really had, never thought about it, you know, that maybe that's because I come from the bush, whereas, you know, you knock around people now and they can't help tell you that they're this or they're that or whatever, and they go, oh, really? Well, fine, okay, didn't notice. So, um, you know, business, business, there's a, it's a bit more, I think, in a fair bit's moved in the last couple of years. So mm. it's a bit more challenging in, in respect of the inside the business. Um, having a profit motive, uh, yes, that's still the key motive, but you can't say that too, too bluntly because mm. you've got to, you know, you got to be feeling good for everyone. Yeah. Um, and then I think governments, um, they're leaning on businesses more as in the past as well, I think. You know, what do you mean? Oh, whether there's interest rate movements, whether there's um, increase in electricity prices, um, you know, supply chains in in supermarkets. You know, it, it's it's all politics. That's what I, it, it's. There's a lot of politics around the place, 
and politicians, they're there only to win the next election. You know, I've given up on on thinking that some politician will turn up with a here's a ten or fifteen year plan and getting bipartisan support. Now, and I, I don't know whether that's permanent mm. or whether it's a it's an outcome of the social media internet age. You know, I keep harking back to who I thought were great politicians, both sides, Bob Hawke and Keating and Howard Costello. You know, they they could um, absorb an issue. Uh, meld it down into a message and sell it, you know, and, and do exactly, I'm only repeating what they've said. You know, here's the issue, here's where we need to get to, here's the winners, here's the losers, and this is how we're going to adjust it, you know, and, and sell it. But, you know, maybe I see the world too simplistically. Can you do that these days with bloody social media trolls and all that sort of stuff? And see, I, I don't, not even on social media. I couldn't give rats what they say about me. You know, maybe it's bad or good, I don't know. Now talking about hunting, shooting, fishing, and pigs is probably really bad, but, you know. Well, now we've come out of COVID and it's, um, you know, spirit's pretty high, Mick. What do you reckon we should be looking forward to? You know, you said you're in the world of business. You're well, look, I think the that, that there's huge opportunities. And well, I'll give you an example. I just now you mentioned that. My wife's got a little business in Warwick up there. and um, Oh, that's where we're going to stalk you, do we? <laughs> <laughs> well, just remember, come, come tooled up. <laughs> So um, <laughs> COVID hits, okay? So you've mm-hmm. got a whole heap of people out of the airlines, uh, cabin crew, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, they've been stood down. They're on JobKeeper, whatever. Yeah. You know, and of course, you, you think of it, cabin crew, what's their skills? You know, huge interpersonal skills. Dealing with dickheads on planes, you know, get up and pick the pointy in there. Wow, I've got, I've got an upgrade on points. A couple of them I met just recently. Um, they just went for a trip out, jumped in the car one day, a couple of mates, uh, they happened to be women, and turned up at, I don't know, some Port Longridge or somewhere, and the and the, the bloke in the pub, he's got talking, they're staying there, and he said, oh, can you pull beers? Oh, give it a go. So, you know, over the course of a, an hour, one night, that turns into these couple of women stayed there for a couple of days, you know, for, I don't know, obviously got paid or something, but... So then the publican and his wife could have a break. Yeah, right. What I'm going to, that's turned into a business. Yeah, right. Oh, so they're relieving other, other pubs, are they? Yeah, because now that now they got they went back and told another one of their mates, and all of a sudden, said, oh, that's a business there. Yeah. So now they got the um, it's called business called Boss Break, and I give it a break, a shocking name, Boss Break. But yeah, so there's all these places, like you can imagine, mum and dad, you know, couple. That it's twenty four seven, yeah. And of course, you do that for four or five years, and you probably want to sell out and move on. But that's an example of um, people who, and this go back to the cabin crew. They, they early they got paid out or wherever they were um, early retirement. So let's just say they're they're in their fifties or something like that. So yeah. they got plenty of life left. So fantastic. And there's um, I mean heaps of examples like that. You know, you, you what might appear to be a bad situation coming out of COVID, all of a sudden, bang, you've you've got a there's old revenue stream. So do you think there's a real entrepreneurial feel out there in Australia now? Or more so than it used to be? I mean, I'll say yes. And it's it's around because people have now had a bit of time to think. Mm. You know, we're all used to going to the office. Yep. And for the last couple of years, people have not been going to the office and the thinkers have been thinking. They're thinking, oh, well, I'm just as productive as at home. And then you'd get, okay, I'll go and buy a little farm or something down somewhere else. And 
the whole internet of things is yep. all, is, is all the ecosystem. Yeah, well. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy to say it's been negative, but I think ultimately it'll be positive because it's forced people to just think about their lives in a different different way, and hope you know, hopefully, the level of happiness is probably gone up as well. I, I always think back. I did an MBA in about two hundred years ago. When I was out in the eighties, I think something. And one of the economics lecturers. I always remember this, he said, um, you know, the Industrial Revolution was good and bad for society because the whole idea of it was that we, we industrialise a place, that means that people won't have to do as much physical labour. So that means we can all have a bit more leisure time. Mm. And he said the only thing that people got wrong at the time was they didn't, they didn't factor in human selfishness in the sense of the Industrial Revolution happened and then the industrial titans became titans by buying it all up and then taking all the money so people had to still work doing something to to survive yeah and i just contrast that to covid because i think something similar has happened in a good positive sense versus negative with covid people have been forced to work at home and i think there are quite a number of people thought well i don't really like going to the office all the time now. I don't need to. I'm not going to work as much. So that's that's a good thing yeah. if you follow me there. Yeah. So that, that's a you know so-called tectonic shift in in the way um, we'll see work in in future. And we've moved on from COVID now because I'm I'm just about done with it. Well, I think we have. Is, isn't that isn't that interesting? Um, at the start of this, um, and you know, just this is just a factual statement. So. You had prime ministers and chief ministers and bloody premiers and all that sort of stuff on a daily basis offering collective condolences to the sad passing of an 85-year-old in palliative care. Yes. Whereas now, I think I heard in the radio today that there was 40 people died of or whatever COVID today. You know, just indicative of how, um, yeah, people just move on and... You know, if we had the, what's my point there? My point there is from the very start of COVID, had we focused on protecting the vulnerable uh, aggressively, I think we would have been a, in a better position. But anyway, post-COVID, everyone's going to say, yeah, I told you I was exactly right what I predicted. Mm -hmm. But um, there's some people still want COVID to be theirs. Others others don't. But, but yeah. One last uh, bit of expert opinion here. Mick, you're pretty good with the New South Wales rugby league coaches. <laughs> yes. Indeed. So has uh, Freddie hasn't called you up yet? No, Freddie still hasn't, he hasn't called me. And but I think with his success, he's probably forgotten my phone number now. <laughs> Buggering. But no, no, they. So what are we looking forward to? We're not too far away from the state of origin, which is a, you know great to bring everybody back together again. Yeah, same old story, Greg. Um, the Maroons will go into it as, as underdogs. Oh, here we go. Yeah, the here Blues go, are red. <laughs> blues are red hot favourites. They are current. <laughs> But um, both Freddie uh, and and Billy Slater, you know, they're both working for Channel Nine. So oh, okay. I reckon, you know, you probably ask Channel Nine who's going to win. <laughs> no, I, I think the Maroons will. Um, I think just uh, Broncos are playing pretty well at the moment. So I think um, Maroons they'll be a force to be reckoned with. So if I'm a young Australian or I'm an old Australian, what should I be thinking about when we walk into the at election booth? And who do you think? It's going to be the victor. Well, mate, that's a, I'm not a politician, but I am concerned about the future of the company. All I'll say is I don't go for um, independence. You know, 
we kid ourselves in Australia that, you know, independence keep the bastards honest and senates and all that sort of stuff. But the fact is in Australia, we have an election federal every three years. If a party does an appalling job, you can get rid of them in three years, which we've done many times. So no, my view is go in, vote for one of the major parties, let them govern in their own right. We don't like it in three years, get rid of them. Worst thing possible is to have either, you know, my sort of politics tainted with the absolutely nutter right-wing fringe because that's a recipe for disaster and, and just blatant pork barrelling all over the countryside, which is bad, you know. Or on the other side of politics with the bloody nutter greens, you know, their focus is just on stuff that appeals to inner-city dwellers, so which is bad for, for us out there. So, no, give, um, I reckon give the major parties a, a, a go. And who as to who's going to win, I think probably leaning towards a hung parliament. So. Yeah, well, that's, that's scary. <laughs> but, yeah, one thing about bloody politics, I, I, I saw this quote the other day, which I think for younger people out there, just like living in the, in the, in the country, in the property, it's the cycles of life. You know, your spring comes, your calves, your lambs drop, all that sort of stuff, and just the cycle of life. So, um, and the cycle of politics you know, good times create weak people, and I think we're right there now. We've had good times for 30 years. Weak people create bad times, and we're talking about potentially pretty messy governments. Um, bad times create strong people because they want to get out of it, and strong people create good times, and so it goes on. Yes, we'll see how it all plays out. Well, that, Mick, as usual, it's been uh, very entertaining. Hey, thanks, Greg. That's great. Really good to catch up and great time to be around. So thank you and look forward to uh, next time. You've been listening to No Limitations. 